This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Remaining Spiritually Strong. In the first half, Suzanne Johnson Davis shares her address, Keeping Our Spiritual Wells Flowing. Then in the second half, Matthew Wickman speaks on Thriving Spiritually. There is a story of a man who was traveling across desert terrain and saw a road that looked as if it would be a shortcut. A posted sign warned against traveling on it because it had no services available. The man decided to take the road anyway. After a time in the extreme heat, his car stopped in the middle of the desert. Off in the distance, the man saw a grouping of houses, and he hoped that help could be found there. After he had walked for some time, he realized it was farther than he had anticipated. He kept walking in the hot sun until he reached the ghost town. No one could be found there. Only a few old buildings survived. In the middle of the town, the man saw a water pump. He rushed over and quickly started to pump the old rusty handle to get whatever water was available. Nothing happened. As he looked down, he saw a metal can with a piece of paper bearing scrawled handwriting on The note said there was a bottle of water under a rock nearby, and if all the water was poured into the pump hole, the well would flow forth with abundance. The man had come to the decisive moment. Should he choose to drink the only water available and not plumb the pipe, or should he put the water into the pump so that the well would flow again? His lack of faith would not allow him to put the water in the well. Instead, he took his chances. He drank the last bottle of water and staggered off, hoping that someone would find him and lead the next person to find no water or chance of survival. I feel this is much like the decisions we make daily. We must decide whether we will fill our spiritual wells with things of the Spirit, thereby saving ourselves and others, or draw, draw, draw from other wells, never filling them with more light and knowledge, and finally not reaching the spirituality that we could. Each of us has our own well to fill. How do we keep our spiritual wells flowing? It is, I feel, by building a strong testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ and of our Heavenly Father. Each day should bring us opportunities to build upon our existing testimonies and fortify to a greater degree our belief in the Savior, Jesus Christ. Our testimony of the gospel is one of our precious possessions. It will bring us closer to our Savior and guide our thoughts and actions. A testimony is of utmost importance. In Moroni 10, 1-7, we find the formula for receiving a testimony. These scriptures tell us how to gain a testimony about the Book of Mormon, but is also a formula that can be followed to build a testimony about any gospel principle. First, read and study about the principle. Second, ponder the ideas in your heart and receive a feeling. Third, put yourself in a frame of mind where you can accept the will of your Heavenly Father. Fourth, strive for a sincere heart, having real intent and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Fifth, ask God in the name of Jesus Christ if the knowledge pondered is true. And sixth, recognize the promptings and feeling manifest to you by the Holy Ghost. Each of us chooses to strengthen our testimony on a daily basis. With regard to a personal testimony, President Harold B. Lee said, 
The strength of this Church is not to be measured by the amount of money paid as tithing by the faithful members, nor by the total membership of the Church, nor by the number of chapels or temple buildings. The real strength of the Church is to be measured by the individual testimonies to be found in the total membership of the Church. As a professor in the Department of Dance, I have had many wonderful opportunities for my personal testimony to grow as I have traveled all over the world to share the universal language of dance. It has also been my privilege to see dedicated and humble students at Brigham Young University, part of our performing companies, who govern their lives with sound gospel principles and shine as a light unto the world. As we tour, we are often hosted by sponsors in other countries who have never heard of the Gospel of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But the light that shines from the eyes of our students as they perform on stage always attracts their attention and brings questions from the viewers. Why are these students so happy? Why do they seem to be so close together as a group and care for each other? Why do they have such a sense of worth? Why would they spend their valuable time to come to some of these remote places and share their talents? All of the answers to these questions are tied to gospel principles. The touring program at the University is designed to bring the gospel message to people all across the globe through talents of music, song, and dance. Regarding talent, President Joseph F. Smith said, Every son and every daughter of God has received some talent, and each will be held in strict account for the use or misuse for which it is put. We are each responsible to develop our talents and use them to help to further the work of the Lord. Through the talent of dance, we are able to become closer to others. As these young students tour, they are able to share their testimonies verbally. By example, as they live with these kind people who are their hosts, and as they perform on stage and display their God-given talents. As each of us on the tour serves, we gain testimonies and our talents increase. Our spirits are fed by so many saints and individuals as we meet around the world. Let me relate such a story. As I was touring with the International Folk Dancers as a performer many years ago, and Mary B. Jensen, founder and first director of the Folk Dancers, I stayed in a very modest apartment in Sweden with a middle-aged couple and their two children. Their home was of humble means, but they had a special spirit of love towards us because we were members of the Church. I had told the sister how much I admired her beautiful old concert piano. She shared with me that they would soon not have the piano. It had been in an heirloom in the family from her parents, and all of her brothers and sisters had wanted the piano, but her parents had left it to her because she played so beautifully. When I asked her why she would not have the piano, she said, We have a buyer for it, and we are going to use the money to go to the Swiss temple to be sealed for time and all eternity and be able to do work one week for the dead. The price for a temple experience far outweighed the precious meaning of the piano for this dear sister. It was a sacrifice for her own family, but a worthwhile one. What a lesson this was for me! I have often thought back to that experience, and I always feel a deep sense of appreciation for the opportunity I have to visit temples all over the world and to go within their hallowed halls. 
We living in Provo can be to eight temples within two hours' driving time. The Logan, Ogden, Bannifal, Salt Lake, Jordan River, Mount Tippinogus, Provo, and the Manti temples. Only the St. George Temple is farther than two hours away. On November 2, 1997, we will have the Vernal Temple dedicated, our tenth temple in Utah. It will service over 36,000 saints in the area. What a blessing! The Vernal Temple will be the 51st operating temple of the Church. There will be 27 temples in the United States and 24 spread throughout the world. We are a temple-going people. These temples all help us to strengthen our testimonies and bring us closer to our ancestors and to God. Our prophet, Gordon B. Hinckley, has said, Each temple built by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints stands as an expression of the testimony of this people that God our Father lives, that He has a plan for the blessing of His sons and daughters of all generations. Last summer, as I was touring with international folk dancers on a professional development leave, we all had the experience of meeting with the temple president in Stockholm, Sweden, where the saints of the Church in 1985 had their temple dedicated. He shared with us the fact that the temple district is very large. They have members come from as far away as Serbia and Russia, or Siberia, Russia, five long days of travel away from the temple. These visitors have little means, and so the saints in the areas house and care for them. The temple presidency sets aside the time for the Russian Church members to do work for a week and conduct all the sessions in the Russian language. What a unique and wonderful experience for all those involved! But what a lot of sacrifice for these dear saints who travel so far and those who help host them as guests over long periods of time. Opportunities like these fill their spiritual wells. Those of us who are worthy to visit the temple, surely we who live in this area, can appreciate more the closeness of our Father's houses, where we can frequently grow in wisdom and truth and light. There are many other ways to build our testimonies and sensitize our spirits—daily prayer, reading and studying the scriptures, attending our Sunday services reading out of the best books, following the promptings of the Spirit, serving others, striving to be a good example of gospel living, sharing our talents and gifts, attending the many uplifting firesides and devotionals on this campus, treating our earthly bodies as temples, and following the guidance of our prophet Gordon B. Hinckley. These are just a few principles, but because all of us are so individual, we all need to work on various challenges. One gospel principle may be difficult for one person to follow, while another principle may be more challenging for someone else. The important fact is, however, that we are diligently working to strengthen our testimony, and we will benefit most from this. If we are to build our testimonies, we cannot do it without the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost should be our closest companion. He is a member of the Godhead. Heavenly Father Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost comprise this Godhead. They are unified in purpose, but each has an important responsibility concerning the plan of salvation. Our Heavenly Father is our Father and Ruler. Christ is our Brother and Savior. 
and the Holy Ghost is a revelator and testifier of all truth. Even though he is a spirit, he has the form and likeness of a man. He can only be in one place at a time, but his influence can be felt everywhere at the same time. Because he has no body, he can dwell in us to help guide and direct us in paths of righteousness. He is our Heavenly Father's messenger and is a sacred gift to each of us. In Moroni 10 and 5 we read, And by the power of the Holy Ghost ye may know the truth of all things. What a promise! It is through the Holy Ghost that we know that Jesus is the Christ and our Savior, and that our Father in Heaven lives, that the Church has been restored in these latter days. The Holy Ghost helps us to fulfill our divine potential and sanctifies us to meet God one day. He purifies our hearts so that we no longer wish to be partakers of evil. He will be with us on His terms, however. If we do not strive to obey the commandments of God and keep our thoughts and actions pure, we will not have this wonderful spiritual power to help us. Joseph Fielding Smith said, When a man has the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, it leaves an indelible impression on his soul, one that is not easily erased. It is spirit speaking to spirit, and it comes with a convincing force, a manifestation of an angel, or even the Son of God Himself, would impress the eye and mind and eventually become dimmed. But the impressions of the Holy Ghost seek deeper, deeper into the soul and are difficult to erase. The Holy Ghost, then, should be our temporary guide and should be with us whenever we need Him. We, he can only be with us for short periods of time without being baptized. But as a person receives and is baptized, He will guide and direct us in our thoughts and actions as we are members of the Church, but only if we are living worthily. Having the Holy Ghost as our constant companion brings peace to our hearts and minds and allows us to understand the things of God. I remember an incident when the Holy Ghost guided me as I was touring last summer in Scandinavia. The International Folk Dance Ensemble was to give a fireside for our last evening in Finland before we left for St. Petersburg, Russia. The next morning we needed to end the tour there. We always appreciate the opportunity to share our testimonies in the way of a fireside both in word and song with the saints we stay with in the many areas we visit. Earlier that day we had been hosted by the American Embassy in Finland. It was a very pleasant encounter and an opportunity to let those there know about our beliefs and what we stood for. One of our leaders was carrying all of the tour funds with them for protection because much money had just been transferred into other currency and it needed to be somewhat guarded. Inadvertently, the back case was left at a bus stop when we all jumped on for a quick change of transportation to get back in time for the fireside. After we had reached another transfer, the black case was found to be missing. The leader quickly retraced their connections, only to find it was not there, and the rest of the group had to go on to the chapel. We were all downhearted and worried, because going into Russia would not allow us to be without our own funding to finish the tour. We sought out a room in the ward house and knelt in prayer. A prayer was offered in our behalf. 
It was a somber group indeed. After we left the room, a member of the Church who knew about the ordeal asked me what we would do. I said without hesitation, The case will be found and all will be well. I had such a calm feeling, knowing that our Father in Heaven was watching over us. That, however, would not have been my typical response. Losing that much money anywhere would have been disastrous. We went on to ready ourselves for the fireside as planned. But just as we were about to proceed, a man came to the leader who had lost the bag. A black case has been found and interned into the police, who located a USA address on, called the American Embassy, where we had just been hosted, and the embassy personnel had called us, knowing where we were expected to be that evening. Two young boys of about 13 or 14 found the bag and turned it in. When they saw how much money was inside, they might have been afraid it was gang-related. As is customary in Finland, a certain percentage of any money found is due the finders. What a small price of only $500 was given to the boys, whereas otherwise we could have been penniless. Within a five-hour period, all factors had fallen into place to find and return the money we so badly needed. This truly was a miracle to me. Throughout this ordeal, the Holy Ghost confirmed to my mind that all would be well. What a blessing to have the Holy Ghost to guide and lead us daily. He has given me many answers and helped calm my spirits many times, such as when we were at checkpoints in Russia and our guides were not allowed to meet us at the crossing. Yet we cleared in record time or the time our costumes were held in customs and we had to have them for a show that evening and needed the authorities of the countries to soften their hearts and help us. And they did. Or the time in South America when a small temple housing unit had to accommodate all of us for a week because our previous contract had fallen through. But all of the right connections were made anyway. The Holy Ghost helped us in each instance and is only waiting for us to ask in righteousness and faith for the support we are often in need of. To keep our spiritual wells full, we need to give of our waters. The Lord counts on us to be His servants. King Benjamin in Mosiah 2 and 17 said, When ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. Because we are all so blessed, with so much, especially in this land of freedom and opportunity. We must make service our trademark. One can seem to feel the spirit of those who continually serve when help is needed. They have a certain love, caring, and spirit about them. I like the way Sister Okasaki feels about service. Service is the signature of the Savior. In nothing do we resemble the Savior more than in serving others. The Savior was the perfect example of service. His mission was to come to earth to serve others and give His life for us. When on the earth He served the ignorant, the poor, sinner, and despised. He fed the hungry, healed the sick, raised the dead, and taught the gospel to all those who would follow Him. Even though the Savior was our God and the Lord of this earth, he always performed acts of humble service. We must follow His example. In service, we find ourselves are more able to love, 
have more joy and see our problems as less serious, and we are on the road to gaining eternal life. There are many ways to serve others. We can help physically, socially, economically, spiritually. Throughout our lifetime, all of us will need help from another. We have often heard it said that it is usually through another person that God meets our needs. We must be His servants. What have you done today in the way of service to another? Have you been the Lord's missionary for good? Have you put others' needs above your own? I have found that the more you give to others, the more that seems to come back full circle. Sister Okasaki counseleth us to concentrate on the joy of service, not the job. We need not set unrealistic expectations upon ourselves, but find a balance of what we can give. We alone must choose. It is like the story I began with. If we have faith to keep filling our own spiritual wells, we will have the resources and the desire to help others fill theirs. I truly believe we come closer and more like our Savior and Father in Heaven through service. I remember about two years ago when the counselor in the stake presidency of the Sunset Heights stake came to visit me one evening. All of you know that's a little worrisome. I had just moved from a home we had sold to a small house while our other home was being built to be completed in March. It was just after Christmas. My daughter had announced that she had accepted her proposal and wished to be married in March. Some of you know well that getting a wedding ready for a bride is no small task. I was going to give a presentation I still needed to prepare for the last of March at a national conference, and I had my regular heavy load as a faculty member for winter semester. The counselor wanted me to serve as the director of a state dance festival focused on the Israeli culture for the youth. You guessed it. When was it? The end of March. Well, I knew a number of Israeli dances that would fit the occasion, and I felt I could do this calling because of my background. But now was not the time. I had too much to do. He told me to think about it. I did for about two minutes, and then I said, I'll do my best. I've had too many blessings from the Lord to shortchange Him now. I have never had a calling in the Church that went so smoothly. Leaders were called from all the wards to help me teach the dances to the youth. Others helped with the facilities and the equipment. Parents and ward members helped with costumes, and the dance festival came off with a wonderful spirit about it. I learned a very important lesson again. The Lord does want us to serve where we are chosen and will help those who serve Him if they are willing and faithful. I still have young people and leaders mention the festival with fond memories. I even now draw from this experience to keep my own spiritual well full. Sometimes service actually can save lives and the spirits of others. When I was in Sweden last summer, I had a sister tell me a story of service she and others had performed for an orphanage in Russia. The story has been written in the book entitled To Rejoice as Woman, written by Veronica Eklund. I would like to tell a very short version. When the Relief Society had its sesquicentennial anniversary not long ago, Sisters from all over the world were challenged to do significant acts of service for their community. 
The Hayden Warden in Stockholm, Sweden, decided to direct their attention to the plight of the poor in a Russian orphanage in Sikvikar. When they found out how much the children were in need, they wanted to help. It was far from Stockholm. To get there from Moscow alone took 26 hours on a train. Bishop Bregren approved the project, just as long as all ward members participated. They found that the children in the orphanage had to take shifts of going to school because they lacked warm clothing necessary. When the Swedish ward learned this, everyone in the ward wanted to donate warm clothing and other items that would benefit the children. The response of the saints was overwhelming. They gave a refrigerator, two sewing machines, clothes, tools, dishes, shoes, skis, ice skates, toys, and much more. There was so much, they wondered how they could transport all of the items. The estimated cost of $30,000 was too high for chartering the plane. The drive was too far, such as from Salt Lake City to Mexico City. It would also have been very dangerous due to the off-limit military regions and the bandits who would do anything to gain merchandise. It looked as if the project would die after all. After much prayer and searching, a friend, Svetlana, was found in Moscow, and the goods were shipped to her in 258 boxes. They needed to be guarded, and as usual, the right forms were not there. After obtaining the signed form, she finally persuaded the customs office to let her take the boxes. It was difficult work to transfer the goods by train to Sikvik Car. What an ordeal! The Relief Society president and husband, Ingrid and Motz, who went with her, were overjoyed when they finally saw the 65 children and 15 leaders at the orphanages who received the boxes. Many of the children had no parents, or they had parents who were ill, mentally disabled, or imprisoned, or who had simply left them. The donated items brought great pleasure to all of the children. One six-year-old girl was overjoyed with a warm, used winter coat. The children, in turn, did a special program of dance, song, and drama. In Russia, the arts are an established part of their culture, and this was their way of saying thank you. That reunion had brought much happiness. The husband and wife returned to Sweden with loving stories to tell all of the ward. The joy did not stop here, however. The ward decided to bring all of the children and leaders to Stockholm for Christmas. What an undertaking! They needed visas, passports, transportation, and special care. All was worked out, and after much preparation, the children arrived on December 26th. The saints were able to share their homes and testimonies with their newly found friends. The Spirit brought all closer together. A local hospital donated its services to help check the children's eyes. They found that two of the children who were wearing glasses didn't need them, and others needed stronger lenses. Some had bleeding sores on their noses because of the heavy glasses they had been wearing. What a difference a light pair of glasses made! When the children left, there was a great deal of joy, members knowing that the children would be much better off from the experience. Yakatrina, one of the leaders at the orphanage, said upon her return, When we have dark days here, and I can assure you at times it feels like we cannot go on, I gather the children around me and talk about our friends in Sweden. We talk about all you have done for us 
and, in particular, the joy that radiates when you smile. We believe that joy comes from your faith. Please, please give us your smiles and your faith. This ward in Sweden did truly perform a miracle, one that will be remembered by many for years to come. Those members are an example to all of us when it comes to unselfish service and filling others' spiritual and physical wells. I'm the Sunset Heights Fourth Ward Primary Senior Chorister. At the present time, I am. But last summer, before I left for my Scandinavian tour, I taught the children the song, I Am a Child of God, in English, Spanish, and Russian. They had fun learning it, and I had hoped that they would have more of a connection with their international brothers and sisters in the Church. By the end of the teaching time, they had learned the different language of the song better than I had. But I loved to hear them sing the song with much conviction and love. I was then in for a big surprise when attending a Sunday service in Norway. Our BYU group was in a room with the youth of the ward where they were bearing their testimonies. I was sitting on the back wall, and suddenly I heard a faint, familiar sound. It was the primary children singing, I am a child of God in Norwegian. What an unexpected treat for me. It brought tears to my eyes to know that we truly are children of our Father in Heaven, and He loves us, whoever we are. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is an international church. I never would have believed that by this time in my life there would be more members of the Church outside of the United States than within. We may live in Africa, Asia, Europe, or the Americas, but a loving Father in Heaven will never let us stray and has provided a way for us to return to live with Him forever. It is indeed our choice, one that will affect the eternities. In summary, it is my prayer that we will choose to keep our testimonies growing, to follow the promptings of the Holy Ghost, and render service to others. I have a firm testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ and of my Father in Heaven that I cannot take for granted. I have been blessed greatly because of this knowledge and feel it is a wonderful opportunity and blessing to be here on this campus serving in the many capacities that I do. I feel it is an opportunity for me to be able to follow the Savior more closely. I know that the Church was restored in these latter days at a very great price by our Prophet Joseph Smith. I feel grateful that the Holy Ghost sustains me and directs me in my paths and helps me to find righteousness. We are all children of a loving Father. He so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son, that whoso believeth in Him shall not have perish but have everlasting life. It is my prayer that each of you will have your wells overflow to serve others and to try to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. In His name, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Remaining Spiritually Strong. We've just heard from Suzanne Johnson-Davis. After the break, we'll return with Matthew Wickman for Thriving Spiritually.
This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is remaining spiritually strong. Next is Matthew Wickman, BYU professor of English and founding director of the BYU Humanities Center at the time of this address, titled Thriving Spiritually. In recent years, I've begun thinking more intently about the aims of a BYU education, particularly the one stipulating that our experiences at this university should be spiritually strengthening. I ask myself what this means relative to the classes I teach, and I ask my students what it means relative to the classes they take. Much of my scholarly work these days addresses diverse aspects of spiritual life in literary and intellectual history, and I now teach a seminar in the English department titled Literature and Spiritual Experience. I love exploring the subject with my students. They are so smart, so insightful about spiritual things. So I put these questions to those of you watching or listening. What does spiritual thriving mean to you? And how would you say you're doing? In answering that first question for myself, I am mindful of President Russell M. Nelson's oft-cited observation that in coming days it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting, and constant influence of the Holy Ghost. By that measure, we might say that we survive and even thrive spiritually to the extent that we habitually seek and enjoy spiritual experiences, that we invite, treasure, and learn from the Spirit of God. These are experiences of a very unique kind. The English poet William Blake once wondered whether it's possible to see the world in a grain of sand, to discern in even the tiniest particles the vast array of forces that make things what they are. In their way, spiritual experiences are such miraculous particles, enabling us to glimpse the vastness of God's plan of salvation. Think about it. To have any experience with the Spirit of God is to experience at least three realities. First, that God lives. Second, that our lives have a purpose, a purpose for God to reach out to us. And third, that Christ's atonement is operative in our lives, bringing us back at least partly into God's presence. To feel the Spirit, even in subtle ways or about seemingly small things, is to open a window onto eternity. For this reason, spiritual experiences are among life's richest, profoundest, most exquisitely meaningful, most empowering, enlightening, and life-giving phenomena. In our religious culture, we often speak about how the Spirit testifies of truth and prompts us to do what is right. Additionally, spiritual experiences draw us to what is sacred, meaningful, and whole. As such, they foster healing, sharpen our minds, enliven our perceptions, deepen our empathy, and increase our care for all of creation. Spiritual experiences fill us with hope and purpose, wisdom and understanding. They motivate and console. Over time, their effect is transformative, helping us become greater, more fully realized versions of ourselves. In the seminar I teach on spiritual experience and literature, the students and I instruct each other on how to recognize ways that poems and novels give expression to spiritual things, 
This requires us to learn about what spirituality means in academic as well as scriptural terms. To familiar religious phrases like burning in the bosom and stupor of thought, we acquire new language about, for example, neurocognitive intensification, the interconnectedness of thought and feeling, and concern for matters of ultimate value. As we expand our spiritual vocabularies, and quicken our perception of what spiritual impressions are and how they work, we come to understand more completely how the Spirit informs others' lives, and hopefully our own. As an exercise, I ask students to keep journals taking note of their spiritual impressions, when and how they occur and how they respond. One student gave me permission to share a portion of her journal. She recorded a set of spiritual impressions she received shortly before a large assignment was due in another class. She was visiting her family and woke up in the morning eager to get to work, but felt distinct spiritual impressions to do things a little differently, to go back to sleep and get a little more rest, to take time to pray and read her scriptures, and to spend time with her family. As the day progressed, she began to worry. If these were spiritual impressions she was receiving, did the Spirit want her to get a bad grade on her big assignment? Was the Lord trying to humble her? I quote here from her account. I determined whether an impression was coming from the Spirit based on whether it felt peaceful or led in the way of peace. So, when my sister wanted to go for a run, I went. When my mom needed help in the basement, I helped. And I wondered how in the world I was going to get my assignment done. But I kept feeling an extraordinary, counterintuitive peace, like the Lord was showing me how I could live life in a state of calm instead of panic. Of course, by the end of the day, the Lord blessed my mind with ideas and energy to get done all I needed to. In reflecting on this experience, I began to wonder if this is what it's like to actually live under the influence of the Spirit, to live calmly, doing the right things at the right moments, and getting things done with joy and peace instead of stress. And I honestly began to wonder if I'd done it all wrong these last four years of college, and what things would have been like if I had been intentionally living each day like this. I wondered if I could have saved myself a lot of stress and hopelessness, and why I didn't trust the whole time. I'm inspired by my student Moa's account. To elaborate on her insights, what if we sought the presence of the Spirit a little more intentionally? What if we trained ourselves to be more aware of how the Spirit communicates with us? And what if we made it a habit to heed its promptings? What if we were more mindful of cultivating the companionship of the Holy Ghost even when we weren't seeking answers to urgent questions? Would we feel more connected to God and each other? And would we live a little more like the people we want to be? Parley P. Pratt, an early leader of the Restored Church, sure believes so. As he wrote in 1855, the gift of the Holy Ghost quickens all the intellectual faculties, increases, enlarges, expands, and purifies all the natural passions and affections, and adapts them by the gift of wisdom to their lawful use. It inspires, develops, cultivates, and matures all the fine-toned sympathies, joys, tastes, kindred feelings, and affections of our nature. It inspires virtue, kindness, goodness, tenderness, gentleness, and charity. It develops beauty of person, form, and features. 
It tends to health, vigor, animation, and social feeling. In short, it is, as it were, marrow to the bone, joy to the heart, light to the eyes, music to the ears, and life to the whole being. The message here is that the Spirit's influence extends to all areas of life, physical, mental, emotional, social, and more. Its inspiration is not limited to providing direction or confirming truth, but it can expand our capacities to learn and think, to create and enjoy. The Spirit deepens our experience and thus helps us build relationships, heighten our awareness of life's richness and diversity, and discern more intensely the beauty of things to which we might otherwise be dulled. So, how do we access the Spirit more fully? My student's practice was to take careful note of how the Spirit moves her and then discipline herself to respond to its promptings. Many people, though, are unsure of how to judge their own spiritual impressions. Recently, a friend reached out to me wanting to know whether I thought she should speak out about something that was bothering her. As it happened, she contacted me as I was writing this talk. So I asked her whether she'd sought the Spirit to know what to do. She said she tried, but that she sometimes felt confused as to whether her inspiration came from God or herself. I wondered whether my friend and God might work more seamlessly together rather than in opposition. So I asked her instead about her spiritual gifts. What are they? And might they serve as conduits for her to receive inspiration? She shared three of her gifts—discernment, love, and forgiveness. I replied that perhaps these beautiful gifts directed her not to the question of whether she should speak, but how. That perhaps addressing the situation that was bothering her in a discerning, loving, and forgiving way would allow the Spirit to communicate with and also through her. This small suggestion that she trusts her own spiritual gifts seemed to open in her a channel of inspiration and increase her spiritual confidence. Spiritual gifts are precious because they are traces in us of our divine natures, aspects of ourselves in which we more fully reflect our Heavenly Parents. We read in Scripture that there are diversities of gifts, that to each of us is given a gift or perhaps several gifts. A few passages of Scripture list specific spiritual gifts of knowledge, faith, wisdom, and more, though the potential list of such gifts is virtually endless. I've seen before how drawing on these unique gifts can bring us closer to God, perhaps because they call on parts of ourselves that are closer to God already. Many years ago, I taught a prep course for English majors thinking about pursuing PhDs. One exceptionally gifted student, smart and diversely talented, completed the class requirements but seemed more interested in pursuing other opportunities. Several years later, she contacted me and asked if we could talk. I invited her to my home and learned that she'd gotten married, found herself living in places she hadn't anticipated, and no longer felt as assured about following a lifelong career dream. She'd explored other options and nothing seemed right, so she was revisiting her original decision not to pursue a PhD. We began talking again about some of the items we discussed in our prep class years before—the parts of a grad school application, what kind of writing sample to use, what to emphasize in a letter of intent, and so forth. She diligently took a few notes, but I could sense in her feelings of uncertainty and unhappiness. Then the Spirit impressed me with a new thought. I told her not to worry about career tracks for a moment and reflect instead on her spiritual gifts. 
If she thought about pursuing a life most in keeping with those gifts, what kind of life would that be? The mood in the room instantly changed. She said she hadn't thought about approaching her future with that question in mind. Later in the week, she sent me a note informing me that she had taken the question to heart, had found new clarity in her thinking, and now discerned a life and career path that seemed well-suited to her. Anxiety had given way to joy. If we learn to let Him, the Lord through the Spirit can animate all facets of our lives. But seeking the Spirit as our guide can feel a little daunting, at least until we remember that we are co-creators with God, co-creators of our lives and the world around us. While we do confront matters of right or wrong and truth or falsehood, and while it's vital to seek the Spirit's confirmation regarding such things, most inspiration is less absolute in nature. Rather, it tends to be broader and more open-ended. What moves you or what might move you? What might you learn and how might you learn it? What talents, traits, and virtues might you cultivate? What in our world might be better because of your involvement? In these and so many other areas, the Spirit is a creative partner that can help us fashion better ways to live and be. For every occasion when the Spirit helps us narrow our choices, there are many others when the Spirit assists us in multiplying them. The Spirit offers guidance, and that guidance is usually liberating. What then about those seasons of life when we may feel far from God, or when our spiritual lives feel vexed by questions, even crises? For some people, or better said, for most of us, at least some of the time, the difficult parts of our lives can feel overwhelming. What does it mean to thrive spiritually when we feel weighed down by illness, grief, unkindness, loneliness, discrimination, anxiety, depression, abuse, trauma, rejection, disappointment, or numerous other hardships? For any who shoulder such burdens, Spiritual reassurance alone may not seem like much of a remedy, but if we continue to seek the Spirit's presence, even in difficult circumstances, and if we're mindful of what we discern in that miraculous grain of sand, we may find that God and relief are closer than we think. In 2009, I was offered a job teaching Scottish literature at a university in Scotland. I was thrilled by the opportunity, but uncertain as to whether I wanted to leave BYU permanently or move my family out of the U.S. So, BYU generously allowed me to accept the position on a half-time basis, and for a couple years, my wife, daughters, and I divided our time between Utah and Aberdeen, a beautiful Scottish city on the North Sea. While we loved the diversity of our experience and so many people we met in Scotland, we knew we couldn't sustain a split existence, so we began pondering where to settle long-term. I thought exhaustively through our options and also sought guidance and prayer. And for a long time, weeks, then months, I received no answer. Or rather, I felt inspiration but no confirmation, no clear impressions to stay or go. Instead, I felt directed to wait and reflect on reasons why I might choose one path or the other, examining less what I should do than the person I would be in making the decision. 
It was an important exercise, but my uncertainty persisted, and I was beginning to grow anxious. I was at this place in life on the second-to-last Sunday of March 2012 when my ward's priesthood quorum leader announced that the following week, a man from our neighborhood, a lifelong member of the church now in his 80s, would be attending our services for the first time in more than 50 years. When you see him, he encouraged us, say hello, make him feel welcome. Fair enough, I thought, though it didn't seem like anybody in our friendly group would need such encouragement. The following week, the last Sunday of March, this man, Jerry, joined us for priesthood meeting. I instantly took to him. He carried an air of understated elegance and stood and introduced himself in a soft, plain-spoken voice. When the meeting adjourned, I stepped into the hallway for a couple minutes. Sunday school, our next meeting, was held in that same room. When I returned, there was an open seat next to Jerry, so I took it and extended my hand. I forget the topic of our Sunday school lesson that day. I remember, though, that it was based on the Book of Mormon, and all Jerry had was an old Bible. So, as the teacher moved through the lesson, I opened my scriptures so that Jerry could follow along. When the class ended, people began filing to the chapel for sacrament meeting. But Jerry remained slumped in his chair, staring at the floor. I stayed there with him. Everything all right? He blinked a couple times, formulating a thought. What he finally emitted was dour. That discussion went over my head. Everyone here knows so much about the gospel, and I know so little. I feel like I've wasted my life. I should never have come back. His words landed like a gut punch. Out of nowhere, I found myself in a crisis moment, not of my own life, but someone else's and I was completely unqualified to assess it. I did not know this man and was roughly half his age. My aim in sitting beside him had simply been to convey the welcoming spirit of our ward community. If he said he didn't understand a particular gospel principle, I might have filled in some gaps. If he asked whether ward members socialized much outside church, I might have invited him over for dinner. What I was not equipped to deliver was judgment on the meaning of his life, on where it had been wasted, and where it was well spent. But the occasion called for a substantive reply and for an understanding of this man and his circumstances that I simply did not possess. So I sat still. One second, two seconds, three, praying silently to know what to say. And then, like a lightning flash, a thought burst into my mind. I tapped his Bible. When you get home today, I want you to open to Matthew 20. There's a parable there about laborers in the vineyard. The Lord calls some workers early, some a little later, some later, and then later still, and some at the last hour of the day. But if they go to work for him, he pays them all the same wage. The message is that it's never too late for us to respond to God. In his eyes, we're never too late. Jerry's brow softened a little. I like the sound of that. Well, I like it too, and I believe it's true. So today, after you get home, read that parable. And then the next time we're here at church, I want you to tell me what your impressions were as you read it. Yeah, okay, he pledged. I can do that. The following week, the first Sunday of April, we didn't hold meetings at our ward, as it was general conference, televised globally across the entire church. One of the talks that weekend struck me with particular force. It was Elder Jeffrey R. Hollins, and it was titled, The Laborers in the Vineyard. Elder Holland expounded on that parable from Matthew 20, 
and then expressed this beautiful thought. I do not know who in this vast audience today may need to hear the message of forgiveness inherent in this parable. But however late you think you are, however many chances you think you have missed, however many mistakes you feel you have made or talents you think you don't have, or however far from home and family and God you feel you have traveled, I testify that you have not traveled beyond the reach of divine love. It is not possible for you to sink lower than the infinite light of Christ's atonement shines. The Sunday after General Conference, back at our ward building, Jerry found me. Hey, did you hear Elder Holland? He asked. He spoke about that parable. It was a message Jerry felt intended directly for him. He became a vital member of our ward, beloved of the regulars, a minister to those in the margins, and a pilgrim to temples in several western states. Meanwhile, our family eventually received our answers to where we were best planted. I stayed at BYU and some three years later accepted a church calling requiring me to pay regular visits to wards across our stake. As it happens, one of these wards was Elder Holland's, and I would sometimes find myself seated beside him on the stand. One day, a couple years into my assignment, I told him the story about the impact his talk had made on Jerry. He smiled and invoked a theatrical metaphor. You seek inspiration to know what to say, he remarked but you don't always see heaven working in the wings. As I've thought about that experience over the years, I've reflected on the idea that we don't always see heaven working in the wings. Elder Holland didn't see it in the life of one man out of the immense throng of people to whom he'd spoken at General Conference. Jerry didn't see it at first in the difficult decision to return to church after a long absence. And I didn't see it as I brooded week after week over my own big life decision the heavens revealing little, as I pleaded to know whether to stay at BYU or move overseas. As it turns out, my experience in seeking the Spirit was much like the one shared by my student, who wrote about the Spirit's brilliantly counterintuitive inspiration. I had been seeking a concrete answer to prayer, and when one finally came to me, it had nothing to do with where I should work or where my family and I should live but instead was about something altogether different, a kind and earnest older man's regrets over lost time. Regarding my own question, it would soon become clear to me why I had needed to wait for an answer. There was still a missing piece of the puzzle I could not have foreseen, and I also needed time to reflect on my priorities so that when I had to make a difficult decision, I could do so with greater self-understanding. And as the story that Jerry illustrates, the Lord had his own ways of making sure that I understood he was still there. We can't always see heaven working on our behalf, but any experience with the Spirit, no matter how small, is evidence that God is doing just that. Forget for a moment receiving some great answer to prayer. Have you felt the Spirit, even a little, as you sought the Lord in prayer? Have you felt the Spirit convey to you that God loves you, or that He understands you, or that He has great hopes for you, or that He sorrows with you, or rejoices with you, or that He appreciates your gratitude to Him or your kind deed for someone else? Have you felt the Spirit open your mind to help you learn something new, or turn you to something good, or inspire you to perceive something beautiful, or reassure you that things will be okay, that you aren't lost, 
that God knows exactly where you are. If you've ever had any of these experiences or myriad others like them, you've effectively experienced our Father's plan of salvation in a grain of sand. That is, and as I mentioned earlier, you've been shown that God is real, that your life has a purpose, that there's a reason God reached out to you through His Spirit, and that Christ's atonement is making it possible for you to feel God's presence a little more fully. What does spiritual thriving mean to me? Very simply, it means seeking, recognizing, and enjoying experiences with the Spirit of God. It means being mindful of the breadth of ways the Spirit moves us, and then being responsive to its inspiration, perhaps by drawing on our unique spiritual gifts, and perhaps by learning to perceive God's presence, even when we're preoccupied with other concerns. So, how are you doing? Would you say you're thriving spiritually? My conviction is that if you have experiences with the Spirit, even ones that are only still and small, then God is choosing to abide with you. Therefore, despite any cares and questions you may have, you're probably doing very well indeed. Meanwhile, if you're disheartened about all the spiritual experiences you feel you don't have, then I would say to you what the Lord once communicated to my friend Jerry, which is that in God's eyes, you're probably doing a lot better than you think you are. God knows and loves you, and He hasn't forgotten about you. You can't sink lower than the infinite light of Christ's atonement shines, and we don't always see heaven working in the wings. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Remaining Spiritually Strong with thoughts from Suzanne Johnson Davis and Matthew Wickman. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.